0: Hi there, everyone. This is John Allen, and welcome to Last Week in the Church. Uh, Happy Friday to you. This week, we are going to be looking at the Catholic context in Hong Kong, the ethics of COVID vaccines, and from the only in Italy files, the politics of Midnight Mass. Stick around. All right, and we begin with Hong Kong. Now, when China imposed its draconian new national security law on the former British territory, uh, there was a great deal of alarm. People predicted that it would mean the end of the one people, two systems approach. It would be the demise of democracy in Hong Kong. It would be an end to autonomy for the former British territory. Uh, At the time, some of that may have seemed overheated rhetoric, but it was enough to drive thousands uh, of people in Hong Kong, particularly young people, into the streets uh, last year, early this year, uh, to defend democracy, to defend human rights, uh, and to try to shine a spotlight on what they saw as China's increasingly authoritarian policy. This week, we have begun to see some of the bitter fruits of China's crackdown on those protests take effect. On Wednesday, three young pro-democracy activists, Joshua Wong, Agnes Chow, and Ivan Lam, were sentenced to 13, 10, and 7 months in jail, respectively, for their role in leading those 2019 protests. And we have also seen, uh, roughly 24 hours later, a Media mogul Jimmy Lai uh, detained by Hong Kong authorities once again uh, on suspicions of aiding and abetting those protests which have been, def- have been defined by the pro-Beijing authorities on-, on Hong Kong as threats to public order and national security. Uh, Now, this has been seen uh, in terms of the way it's been reported in the media, in terms of reaction online. I mean, if you follow the comms boxes on news sites or you follow people's Twitter feeds, this has been styled largely as a a kind of an issue of democracy and human rights uh, and therefore an essentially secular political conflict. For the most part, that's probably true. But there are two fascinating bits of Catholic subtext to this whole situation worth noting. Let's begin with this. Uh, Of those three young protesters sentenced this week, two of the three are Christian. Now, if you're doing the numbers, that's 66%, while only 12% of Hong Kong's overall population is Christian. Joshua Wong is a very outspoken evangelical Protestant. Agnes Chow, who, by the way, for her 24th birthday on Friday, got to spend that as her first full day in prison uh, with her new term. A, she is a Roman Catholic, a practicing, faithful Roman Catholic. During the street protests last year, in fact, the rallying cry, the kind of unofficial anthem of the protest movements, was the Christian hymn, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. Now, that was a little bit of a tactical move because under Hong Kong civic ordinances, there are circumstances in which political protests are prohibited, but religious gatherings aren't. So by invoking religious imagery, the protesters could hope to buy themselves a bit more breathing space. But it also reflected genuine conviction. Jimmy Lai by the way, the the tycoon uh, who was put behind bars briefly this week, uh, he's also a practicing Roman Catholic. In fact, he just received an award from the pro-free market Acton Institute uh, in late November for his advocacy of democracy, free markets, personal liberty. Uh, So there are Catholic ties uh, in Christian ties running through this story that are quite fascinating to behold, all of which leads to the very interesting thought exercise. Should we think about what's happening in Hong Kong right now as an instance of religious persecution, as an instance of anti-Christian persecution, given that a highly disproportionate share of the victims of Beijing's crackdown are themselves Christians, and in many cases, such as Agnes Chow, Catholics? Well, you know, at one level, you would say the answer to that question is probably not. Uh, You know, does Beijing uh, or do the Hong Kong authorities ultimately care what religion these protesters are? Probably not. Uh, and in fact, there are a number of Christian churches in Hong Kong that have deliberately made the decision to sit out these protests, to refuse to endorse the protesters, to refuse, refuse to offer amnesty in their churches to, to dissidents facing arrest and so on. Uh, and they have been largely left alone. They've been fine. Uh, so, from the point of view of the people, oh, and we should also note uh, that the, the architect, in a sense, of this crackdown, Carrie Lam, who is the pro Beijing chief executive of Hong Kong, is herself a Roman Catholic who was educated at a school for girls run by the Kenosian sisters in Hong Kong when she was young. So, uh, do the architects of this crackdown really care whether these people are Christians or not? And are they driven by religious hatred? no probably not but I I would submit is that the right question to be asking because it seems to me that defines whether this counts as religious persecution by putting all the weight on the motives of the persecutors what about the persecutees what is Agnes Chow doing in a Chinese-backed Hong Kong prison cell right now well if you listen to a 2009 interview she gave it is all about her Catholic faith, her commitment to Catholic social teaching, the inspiration she got, uh, and continues to get through prayer, through reading the Bible, through the Mass and the other sacraments. If you listen to Joshua Wong, it clearly is all about his religious faith uh, and, and on and on. Uh, and and I, I think the question, therefore, really isn't so much, why are these people being put in jail? The question perhaps ought to be, why are they willing to go to jail in order to stand for principle. And if you put the emphasis there, it is very clear that Christianity is interwoven inextricably into this story. And so while it clearly is a kind of ham fisted political crackdown, uh, I think it, would be, it is arguably a bit reductionist to say uh, that religion doesn't have anything to do with it. Now, here's the other bit of Catholic subtext that I find fascinating. Uh, You know, we Westerners, we Americans in particular, I'll confess, you know, we love to divide the world up into left and right, liberals and conservatives. Those tend to be the only categories we recognize. And if you won't admit to being one or the other, then we think you've got something to hide. Uh, But Hong Kong is kind of where that binary thinking goes to die. Because, you know, these young dissidents who, who just got thrown in jail, uh, Wong, Chow, and Lam, uh, they, too much of elite liberal secular opinion, are kind of the flavor of the week. They are the great martyrs to democracy and human rights who were being oppressed by a kind of authoritarian regime this week. In other words, they would be sort of liberal heroes. You want to know who one of their heroes is, particularly in the case of Agnes Chow? It would be Cardinal Joseph Zen, the retired bishop of Hong Kong, uh, who is by far the most outspoken member of the Chinese uh, hierarchy in calling Beijing on its anti-democratic and anti-religious policies. Now, Zen in conventional Catholic terms, would be seen as a kind of raging conservative. Uh, he would be seen as buddies with the so-called dubia cardinals, those who early on uh, sort of went after Pope Francis over his document Amoris Laetitiae, and he is certainly the champion of anti-communist conservative hawks who love the way uh, that Zen acts as a thorn in the side to The Francis Papacy over China. I mean, Zen has openly called the Pope's Cardinal Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Peraline, a liar, a charlatan, and those are just the polite things he said that I can actually repeat on camera. Okay, and so he has become a, a kind of darling of the hard Catholic right. And yet these doyens of secular liberalism today see him as an inspiration and a kind of spiritual father, all of which goes to show you, ladies and gentlemen, that just because the West invented these categories doesn't mean the rest of the world is always obliged to obey them. All right, shifting gears, the ethics of the COVID vaccine. As you know, the UK this week became the first nation in the world to issue regulatory approval to a COVID vaccine. Uh, the first shipments of the Pfizer vaccine are making their way from Belgian warehouses to uh, to the United Kingdom. Even as we speak, they expect first wave uh, the first wave of vaccinations to ta- be taking place in December. Uh, the United States and other parts of the world, and uh, certainly, are not far behind. Uh, Pfizer CEO recently announced that they expect to, to ship 1.3 billion doses uh, of their COVID vaccine in the next three months. And Moderna and other vaccine manufacturing companies will, not, uh, will be in that neighborhood as well. Uh, now, at the same time that these vaccines are rolling out, offering the promise uh, of a, a kind of exit strategy from the nightmare of the COVID-19 pandemic, There is also a kind of budding anti-vaccination movement uh, in various parts of the world. Uh, We have seen this, uh, for instance, among uh, some cultural conservatives who have felt all along that the real dimensions of the pandemic are being exaggerated in the interests of expanding state control and lining the, the pockets of big pharma. Uh, We have seen this among some who were simply suspicious of institutions generally who don't trust the vaccines are going to be safe. But there is also a particularly religious and in some cases Catholic form uh, of objection to these vaccines. We saw that flare up uh, late last month when two bishops in the United States, Bishop Joseph Strickland of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, uh, and Bishop Joseph Brennan of the Diocese of Fresno in California, publicly announced that they could not themselves take this vaccine and they could not encourage people to do it because, in their words, it is derived from genetic materials belonging to aborted fetuses. In their view, that makes taking the vaccine tantamount to material cooperation in an abortion, which, of course, according to classic Orthodox Catholic teaching, is prohibited. Now, subsequently, the U.S. Bishops' Conference and a number of other authoritative Catholic agencies, bishops in Canada, bishops in the U.K., uh, have taken a look uh, at the reality of the situation. They have all issued statements indicating that these vaccines actually are morally acceptable uh, and encouraging people to take them. Now, if you're wondering what the reality of the situation is, here it is. Uh, In the 1960s, specifically in 1962, 1964 and 1966, uh, three unborn children were aborted. Uh, Their genetic materials were later made available to genetic researchers who in the 1960s were really just at the dawn. Uh, of genetic science, Uh, and those researchers were able to cultivate uh, stem lines, cell lines in a laboratory that since divided and reproduced, they have been uh, shared with laboratories and researchers all over the world that have continued to cultivate new cell lines, new generations of cell lines based on those original materials so the genetic materials that are available today that are used in some cases in vaccination research today uh, are several several generations removed from those original genetic materials of the aborted fetuses who by the way these were not uh, unborn children aborted for the purpose of scientific research these were elective abortions where the genetic material was later made available Now, in the case of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, by the way, those vaccines are entirely synthetic, so they don't rely on any of those genetic materials that are derived uh, way back when uh, from the aborted fetuses. Uh, However, uh, they did use uh, some of those cell lines in the control phase of testing the vaccine. These statements, for instance, from the US bishops, from the UK bishops, have indicated that that use of material derived in a kind of remote fashion from uh, the material of aborted unborn children is unfortunate, but not enough to be morally disqualifying. Basically, they argue there are different levels of responsibility here. There is the level of the Uh, certainly the original medical team that carried out the abortion. Then there was the responsibility of the original researcher that made use of that material. Then there was the responsibility of researchers several generations later. And finally, we come to the end user of the vaccine, uh, and basically all of these Catholic bodies have taken the position uh, that when there are no other alternatives available and when there is a clear and present threat to health, it is morally acceptable to take this vaccine. And the, the, the COVID-19 situation clearly would seem to apply. There are no other vaccines available. In fact, these vaccines aren't even available yet to most ordinary people. Uh, and clearly COVID does pose a threat to public health. Uh, The Vatican has not yet waded into this controversy directly, although we should note that in 2017, the Pontifical Academy for Life faced uh, its own vaccination controversy here in Italy. At that time, the Italian government was trying to promote vaccination for measles because the measles infection rate among Italian children was climbing. There was resistance because that vaccine, too, uh, relies on these genetic materials from these uh, unborn children aborted in the 1960s. And at that stage, the Pontifical Academy for Life said that the cooperation in those abortions several decades ago for the end user of the vaccine is so remote uh, as to be morally unproblematic uh, and basically green lighted it. The only ethical issue the Vatican has been raising about the covid vaccine has to do not with production, but with distribution. Uh, the Pope and other Vatican officials have insisted that it shouldn't just be that how deep your pockets are determine how quickly you're able to get vaccinated, uh, that this treatment should be shared equitably with the entire global community and with a special preference for the most vulnerable populations. Uh, As you may have seen this week, three former presidents in the United States, uh, that is uh, President uh, Bill Clinton, President George Bush, uh, and President Barack Obama, Uh, Have all indicated that they will receive the COVID vaccine on camera uh, in order to promote, in order to demonstrate its safety and to encourage people to receive it themselves. President elect Joe Biden has done the same thing remains to be seen if Pope Francis will follow their lead and volunteer to take his own dose on camera. But it looks like Catholic officialdom is going to line up behind the safety and the moral acceptability of the COVID vaccine. All right, finally, speaking of Italy... Uh, I have in my head, not so much in my office, because you know this is a virtual 21st century world. Who does paper anymore? Uh, but in my head, uh, I carry around a uh, one of those old filing cabinets uh, with a big, thick file that I like to call "Only in Italy." <laughs> it is uh, examples of things that really go on only here in Il Bel Paese. Uh, I've been living in Italy off and on for most of my adult life, about 25 years. Uh, And so you see these things quite a bit. Uh, And this week was another classic example. Now, if you were combing English language reporting about Italy this past week, you may have seen a headline under News of the Weird uh, that says, uh, Italy cancels Midnight Mass. Okay, this just is not true. Uh, Here's what actually happened. The Italian government put out rules, anti-COVID rules, for the period from December 20th to January 6th. That is covering Christmas, New Year's and the Feast of the Epiphany, which here in Italy is a very big deal, too. Uh, And basically, one of the one of those rules uh, was that there is going to be a hard curfew at 10 o'clock. So from 10 until 6 in the morning and on New Year's Eve, for reasons that surpass understanding, from 10 until 7 in the morning, maybe because the prime minister figured nobody in Italy is going to be up at 6 o'clock in the morning on New Year's anyway, so that's no sacrifice, so he pushed it to 7. I don't know. But in any event, there is a hard curfew from 10 to 6. Which means, of course, there can be no literal Midnight Mass this year. But the purpose of the decree, ladies and gentlemen, was not to cancel Midnight Mass. Uh, And in fact, was not to cancel Mass. The government has said explicitly that uh, any Catholic Church that wants to can celebrate the Christmas Eve liturgy at 8 o'clock. Just have people out and home by 10 and everything is copacetic. I would note uh, that since the late John Paul years, the Vatican's Midnight Mass hasn't been celebrated at midnight anyway. Uh, typically, it has started at 10 o'clock in the evening on the theory that uh, you know an octogenarian pontiff might wanna be in bed before 2 a.m. when he has to be up the next morning to celebrate the Christmas Day liturgy. Uh, all over the world, uh, Midnight Masses have not necessarily been held at midnight. Uh, now, here's the interest. Here's the only in Italy part. Do you know where the blowback to this is coming from? It is not coming from the Vatican. It is not coming from the Catholic bishops of Italy, all of whom have indicated that they find this a sensible and perfectly acceptable public health precaution. No, you know where it's coming from? Uh, it is coming from the far-right Lega party, political party here in Italy, whose stock in trade is being anti-immigrant these days, under its current leader, Matteo Salvini, uh, but was actually founded by a legendary Italian politician by the name of Umberto Bossi, who actually wanted to get rid of Catholicism altogether and revive the ancient Celtic mythology of the Po River in Northern Italy. Uh, But today you have Salvini and his acolytes running around acting more Catholic than the Pope, Uh, in fact, Uh, There was a politician, a Lega politician uh, in Venice who suggested that this was in effect the government repealing the hour of Christ's birth by authoritarian decree. Uh, which caused the patriarch of Venice to point out that nobody actually knows the hour at which Christ was born. The church has never taught that definitively, and he called this laughable. Now, the other source of blowback uh, to, uh, to, the, to the, the, the impossibility of celebrating a mass actually at midnight this Christmas, ironically enough, uh, is coming from the largest association of masonry, in Italy. Yes, that's right. The Italian Masons, the leader of which this week went in onto the Italian media to lambaste what he described as the shameful silence of the Catholic Church uh, in the Italian Bishops' Conference about this crackdown on religious freedom in Italy. Now, last I checked, the Masons don't actually have a Midnight Mass, and historically, of course, there has been a bit of a rivalry uh, between the Masons and the Catholic Church over the years. But of course, this is Italy. Right. Uh, Where if you want to distinguish yourself as a kind of populist voice, there's almost no way to do it by running against the Catholic Church. The Radical Party has tried that for decades and it routinely gets them about one point seven percent of the vote. So instead, what you have are these populist movements that posture as more Catholic than the pope and the bishops. That, ladies and gentlemen, is political life in Italy. And God help me. I do love it so. All right. That is our show for this week. Thank you for watching. Please join us next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. I will talk to you again soon.